So as Tim mentioned before, uh, we're taking our turns through the, the six of us pastors this summer teaching on Sunday morning, and Tim will continue his series in Romans this next Sunday. And I had a long time to pray and think about what text to preach today, and I tried to think of what would be an encouragement to this church, an uplifting, an uplifting word to give you this morning. And I'd like to address this morning two very, very basic and universal needs that we all have as human beings. Human beings need, in my mind, two things when you boil it all down. We need, we need to hear from God, and we need to go to God. We need a word from God, and we need a way to God. We need to hear from God so that we know what he is like and what he requires of us. And we need to go to God because to be cut off from God in death would literally be darkness and misery and torment forever. And so human beings have these two great needs, one, to hear from God and to go to God. We need, essentially, revelation from God and reconciliation with him. So I think today's passage has been on my mind uh, for a while, and I, I've always wanted to study this passage in depth. And so if you would, open again your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. In chapter 7 of Matthew, we read the words of Jesus as he is coming to the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount. So read with me Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These particular words of Jesus strike terror in the hearts of many, many people. And, and to be honest, these particular words of Jesus have at times terrified me ever since I first heard them from the pulpit. Sitting in the pew, even as a little boy, it terrified me that someday when I finally see Jesus face to face, that there is a chance he might say to me, depart from me, I never knew you. So almost every time I've ever heard this passage preached, it has incited within me a fearful introspection, not just in me, but amongst most congregations that have heard it. Many people live their entire life with this terrifying, lingering, nagging question, am I saved? Will I finally be cast out after a lifetime of trusting Jesus? Some people end up just throwing in the towel and quitting because why trust Jesus if there's even a slight chance it won't matter in the end? And so I'll ask you, have you ever been afraid of these words from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you? Honestly, I think two points need to be said about this passage before we begin this morning. Jesus' intention is not to create within you a crippling, fearful paralysis about whether or not you're saved. His purpose is not to drive the fearful into a, a morbid introspection, but rather Jesus' purpose is to call out the proud, the boastful, the fearless, the self-righteous, and to call them to a, a serious self-examination. The overarching question in this text is, as Tim said earlier in the introduction today, in whom do you place your hope 
and your confidence for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, Jesus' words are intended to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the the comfortable. So let's consider these words of Jesus more in depth so that we might understand them a little bit more. The first thing is, he says, the only one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of the Father. I want you to notice in these words, Jesus does not say, he does not say, the one who tries their best will enter the kingdom of heaven. He does not say, the one who sells all their stuff. He does not say, the one who goes on the mis- on the most mission trips. Jesus does not say, the one who is most committed to me. Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so I ask, who do you think the one who does the will of the Father is? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who does the will of the Father. In this statement, he is pointing to himself. In John chapter 8, verses 21 through 30, Jesus said to them again, he said, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said to, him, said to themselves, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? And Jesus said to them, you are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, meaning that I am Messiah, you will die in your sins. And so they said to, them, to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. The Jews did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, lifted up his being on his cross of crucifixion and his ascension, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying this, Many people believed in him. In John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, I ask you this morning, who does the will of the Father? Always, perfectly, perpetually. And it's Jesus. And I ask you this morning, who does not always do the will of the Father perfectly and perpetually? You and me. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 3, we're familiar with this passage. Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, none are righteous. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. How then are we justified in the sight of a holy God? 
It's by hearing and believing the proclamation that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and rose again in accordance to the will of God the Father. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 5, speaks of how Christ came to fulfill the old covenant and establish the new covenant. It says, when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then on down in verse 9, when Christ said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, he does away with the first covenant to establish the second covenant, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Skip down to verse 14. For by a single offering, namely Christ Jesus himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So can we find a full and final assurance that when we stand before Christ, that we won't hear the words of Jesus, depart from me? Can we find that type of assurance by our being awesome? No. Only by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will perpetually and forever, only the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will perpetually and forever be our confidence. Full assurance and confidence of entering the kingdom of heaven is not found in our own good works because if, if we are too focused on our good works and our, our religiosity, if I can use that word, we'll never know whenever, it's, whenever we've done enough, if it's been good enough, if we've sacrificed enough. As Walter Marshall puts it, he says this, he says, what must we do that, the works, that we work the works of God? And he says, Christ resolves us that we believe on him whom God has sent. He puts us first on the work of believing, which is the work of God by way of eminency, the work of works, because all other good works proceed from it. The biblical teaching that salvation and justification are by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus alone, and our good works are nothing more than the fruit and evidence of salvation and justification. But... Why cannot our good works be the whole or even part of our righteousness before God? And here's why. Because the righteousness which can stand before the judgment seat of God must be absolutely perfect throughout. And it must be wholly conformed to God's divine law. And apart from the Holy Spirit's indwelling power, even our best works in this life are all imperfect and all of them are defiled with sin. So the Protestant reformers back in the day, they rejected this doctrine of justification by grace plus works. 
they held that Jesus alone had merited. In other words, they held that Jesus alone had earned our justification. The Protestant confession is this, that Christ's obedience to God the Father is perfect. That his merit, his obedience, his active and perpetual righteousness, in other words, his whole obedience to God the Father is imputed to us by grace. So the ground of God's acceptance of us, the ground of our justification and assurance in the sight of holy God as righteousness is and will always be entirely outside of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we, as Protestants today, reject the idea that we get into the kingdom of God by grace, but we stay in by works. We reject that. Scripture is clear that we're justified by faith in Christ, that we're justified by his good works, by his obedience, by his sacrifice to God, his perpetual mediation in heaven to God the Father on our behalf. So today's passage, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, if you look up the page, they're preceded by these words of Jesus. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. When Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, he is literally saying, I am the narrow gate. Enter the kingdom of God by me, because I always do the will of the Father, perfectly, perpetually, eternally. The Apostle John records Jesus declaring in John chapter 10, verse 7, Truly I say to you that I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I want you to think of this narrow gate that he is describing as himself as a one-way entrance. Think all the way back to pictures in the Old Testament, like Noah's Ark. The example of, this is an example of God saving his own people. No one got off of the ark until God put their feet on solid ground. No one fell overboard. No one was lost on the ark. John 10.10, he said, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold and I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. And then he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Now, we often skip right over that those those little words right there. I want to read them and put a different emphasis on different syllables, if you would. He said in those words, I give them eternal life, meaning I, no one else. I give them eternal life. I give it, meaning it's free. I give them eternal life, meaning anyone who believes on me. I give them eternal life, meaning It will last forever. I give them eternal life, meaning I do not give them death, destruction, or shame. I give them eternal life. And then he goes on to say, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. No one who enters Jesus' sheep pen will ever be snatched out of the sheep pen. It's a one-way entrance. So I've come to think of this verse, um, these these words of Jesus, as a skill that's often used by carpenters. Um, I thought about it again just a few weeks ago when Kurt and I built the, uh, what's a gaga pit? Is that what it's called? Which, by the way, does not require a whole lot of construction experience. Um, It went up pretty easily. But I've come to think of these words uh, used by Jesus as a skill that's used by carpenters. Sometimes in rough carpentry, uh, the workman will drive a long nail through thinner boards so that the point will stick out the back. And then with a blow of the hammer, he will drive that point of the nail sideways into the wood and embed it actually in the other side. It's called uh, clenching the nail. And it makes that joint more firm because the nail cannot back itself out from that position. Does that make sense? Are you picturing that in your mind? A longer nail you nail it down, it cannot come back out. And essentially, this is what Jesus did in these verses. He was so interested in getting the doctrine of eternal security to stick in the minds of his disciples that he not only drove the nail, but he drove two nails, and then he clinched them both. Here's what I mean by that. First, he taught that those who have been given eternal life, he said, I give them eternal life. That's the first nail. This makes the truth secure because eternal life can never be lost. If it could be lost after a few years or even after after many years, it was never eternal in the first place. Nevertheless, Jesus knew that many would attempt to try to explain this truth away, and so he said they will never perish. That's the clinch by which the doctrine of perseverance is made fast. But two clenched nails is better than one clenched nail. And so Jesus drove a second nail. He said, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he clenches that nail. He said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Another illustration of eternal security is to imagine yourself to be a coin securely held in Christ's grip. And that's a pretty secure place to be, especially for any object, but especially for us, considering whose hand is holding us. But Jesus then adds that the hand of God the Father is over his hand, so we're enclosed in two hands. Essentially, we are doubly secure. So if and when you feel insecure, you can remember that even when we are held in that manner, the Father and the Son have two other hands to defend us. Christ follower today, this is what you shouldn't be This is why you shouldn't be afraid of this passage because it's not the strength of your faith or the perfection of your obedience to the Father that saves you. It's the object of your faith and the perfection of his obedience to the Father that saves us. So now that we have a proper framework for the statement, the one who does the will of the Father, now that we have faith and holiness, doing the will of the Father in proper order. Let's look at the second part of today's text. Matthew seven twenty two. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus said, 
I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, did you catch a recurrence in, in that verse? Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? So let me ask you, where are the workers of lawlessness fingers pointed? They're pointing to themselves. They're touting their own religious accomplishments. And how does Jesus respond to him? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Workers of lawlessness. Which brings us to the second point of this text, and that is doing the will of God is not the same as being religious. Doing the will of God is not the same as being religious. There's a pattern within the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. In chapter 5, when, uh, in chapter five of Matthew, when Jesus says repeatedly, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He says that several times. He's referring to the teaching of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, as Jesus described them, they were hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. They were outwardly appearing righteousness, but inside they were full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shuts up everyone under the standard of God, the Father's standard of holiness. If you're reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, and 21 through 23, I never knew you depart from me. You should turn back just one page um, to chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then, in the, in the next verses, he continues to point to himself, that we must enter the kingdom of heaven by the narrow gate, that we must place, that we must place the entirety of our faith in him. The Jews were very, very proud of their lineage from Abraham. In chapter 8, in the book of John, it records that the Jews said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of, that Abraham did. And namely, that those works were to believe God and thereby be credited as righteous. And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus tells them that because of their refusal to love and to trust that he is the promised final word from God and the only way to God the Father, that they are literally children of the devil and that they are workers of lawlessness. The central message of the Bible is that we can have a relationship with God by his sheer grace, that our moral efforts are too feeble and falsely motivated to merit salvation. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has provided salvation for us, which we receive as a gift by faith. The Sermon on the Mount is intended to cause us, though, to consider the righteousness of Jesus. For us to read the Sermon on the Mount and look introspectively, to look inside for righteousness, is what Jesus describes as an eternal tragedy waiting to happen. And the Sermon on the Mount is not just intended to point unbelievers to Jesus. It's also intended to point believers yet again to Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is intended to point those who on one day fall into the old way of thinking, you know what, I'm pretty awesome at being a good person. I'm pretty confident today that I'll make it into heaven. And on the next day, whenever they stumbled and sinned, they think to themselves again, I sure hope Jesus won't say to me, depart, I never knew you. 
the mistaken belief that a person must somehow clean himself up or clean herself up in order to merit God's approval is not the message of Christianity. This means, though, that our churches our churches will be filled with immature and broken people who still have a long way to go emotionally, morally, spiritually. This morning in this room, there are believers, there are unbelievers, there are Christians, there are pre-Christians. This morning in this room, there are sexual sinners, lying sinners, stealing sinners, lazy sinners, workaholic cynics, sinners, parent disobeying sinners, self-righteous sinners, on and on and on. And if our hope rests in our own righteousness, we indeed are hopeless. But our hope, as we sang this morning, is not in our righteousness. Our hope is in Jesus's righteousness. So becoming a Christian and being a Christian happen in the very same way by faith in Jesus alone. It's a kind of faith that even if it begins weak, that it's the kind of faith that grows and grows to produce a confidence and a boasting that is only in Jesus Christ himself. So to become a Christian and to be a Christian, we must do two things and a third, okay? Two things and a third, and I'll explain that. The first thing that you must do is believe in Christ. Believe in Christ's miraculous birth, his atoning death on the cross, and his life-giving resurrection. Again, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but rather it is the object of your faith that saves you, and that object is a person. It is Jesus Christ himself. This means, though, that you don't have to overcome all of your doubts and fears in order to take hold of Christ. Christ offers righteousness, forgiveness of sin, and the gift of eternal life to everyone who believes upon him. The second thing that we must do is repent. Repentance is confessing the things beside Christ himself that you have been relying on for your hope, for your significance, for your security, for your satisfaction, and ultimately for your joy. And what, what is sin except that which is the pursuit of happiness in something other than Christ. So the repentance that really changes our heart and our relationship with God begins when we recognize that our main sin, the the sin that underlies all other sins, is our innate pursuit of our own autonomy. The underlying sin Underneath all the other sin is our innate pursuit of satisfaction in anything other than real lasting happiness that comes from following Jesus Christ. And then the third thing is the third thing is better described as a way that you continue doing the first two things, and that is committing to a community of other believers. Becoming a Christ follower and being a Christ follower has always had both an individual and a corporate aspect. So we must personally approach God in prayer and publicly identify with him through the church. And the amazing thing about faith in Christ is that those who enter a relationship with God through faith in Christ is that they inevitably and without exception they look back and recognize that God's grace had sought them out 
and illuminated their minds and hearts to a new and true spiritual reality. In other words, all those who enter a relationship with Christ, all those who enter the kingdom of heaven, to use Jesus' words, they all look back upon their regeneration and recognize that God initiated their faith and God sustained their faith. That it was never by their own good works or their own flawed obedience to God. The Heidelberg Catechism, if you've never read through it, is an amazing, amazing document. It's basically structured with question-answer, question-answer, and it's intended to drive down deep in us the doctrines of Christianity. Question number 21 asks this. It says, what is true faith? And the answer it gives is that true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. And if you skip on down, all the way down to question number 86, the Heidelberg says this, Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? And it answers, Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits and that our godly walk of life, that we may win our neighbors for Christ. Essentially, this is how you walk in the Spirit. The covering of of the good news of the gospel, motivates and enables holy living as we continually trust that our new identity is in Christ's righteousness and in his perfect obedience to the Father. So therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to God who appointed him. You Christians, you who share in the calling of God, you Christians who consider Jesus, who think about Jesus, who meditate on Jesus, who listen to Jesus, you have this morning, you have an awesome confidence that you have heard from God and you have a great hope that you are going to God, that you are loved and reconciled and secure and you will never hear the words of Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because Jesus is the apostle from heaven and who brought you your heavenly calling. And he is the final, once-for-all high priest of God who sacrificed for himself and reconciled you to God. And he himself guarantees your homecoming to heaven. So consider Jesus this morning, the apostle from God. Because as we established at the very beginning of this message that human beings essentially need two things. We need to hear from God and we need to go to God. We need a word from God and we need a way to God. And Jesus is that final word from God. He is God's apostle and Jesus is the high priest, the final way to God. I found a clip on YouTube of of Elder D.J. Ward. He is the late pastor of the Main Street Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. And I won't do this uh, justice because he did it 
he said it so amazing. But I wanted, to, I wanted to use this quote from him, from a sermon that he preached. He said, I contend this morning that the death of Christ was not an attempt, it was an accomplishment. And brothers and sisters, when one accomplishes something, it means that they had to have had an assignment. Well, what was that assignment? His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save. Not an attempt to save, not try to save, not hope to save, but he shall save his people from their sin. Is that right? Is it right? And then he says this, now I hear this. I hear this, that I hear it on television, I hear it from pulpits, that God has done all that he can do, and the rest is up to you. If the rest is up to you, then he didn't accomplish it. If anything is up to you, he didn't accomplish it. I've even heard this, that you've got to help God save you. He can't do it by himself. If God cannot do it by himself, he didn't accomplish it. He's a false God. He's a liar. And you best not trust him. If he didn't do it, then we ought to stop singing like we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. Instead, he paid some of it. Now, brothers and sisters, if he did not accomplish it, we are here in vain. And you can have all the religion you want. If this was not accomplished, we're all going to hell. It's just that blunt. It's just that simple. It's just that clear. But if he did do it, he doesn't need your best, and your works need not speak for you. If he did do it, you can leave here this morning rejoicing that your sins are now under the blood of Jesus, and he stands as your substitute, your mediator before God this morning, pleading the blood, pleading his own blood, that perfect sacrifice, that holy attainment, and this morning you can rest that all of your sins are under that blood. Did he accomplish it? Did he fail? Do we need any other prophet to come after him? I declare this morning that he paid it all. He paid it all. Every drop of it, every sin that I've ever committed, every sin I'm going to commit, every sin I've thought about committing, he nailed it to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. So upon hearing the gospel this morning, if you desire to return to Christ today, or if you desire to come to him for the very first time, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for the word is near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture saved everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So the Sermon on the Mount, including today's text, Matthew seven twenty-one through 23, points us all yet again to Jesus' righteousness and obedience. Our hope in this life and the next rests completely upon Jesus, and he has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. I have given God countless reasons not to love me. 
I've given him countless reasons to say to me, depart from me. And yet none of them has been strong enough to change him. When I see Jesus, it will be because he called me, because he is the final word from God, and he kept me. He is the only way to God. Would you bow with me this morning? I want to ask you just a few questions as you're bowing. And you pray in your own mind and heart. What does this text speak to you today? It speaks two things. It's the one who does the will of the Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, doing religious works is not the same as doing the will of the Father. In Jesus' terminology, doing the will of the Father is to trust in him. Therefore, what this text is calling you to do is to come to Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe once again. Trust in Jesus right now, and if you trust in Jesus, you will never hear the words, depart from me. Now, if this warning from Jesus does not cause you to tremble, you are most likely in danger this morning. So I ask you to please re-examine whether your religion is any deeper than an outward conformity to a set of public practices. If, when you hear these words of Christ, your trajectory doesn't shift from trusting in your own awesomeness instead to trusting in faith that Christ's righteousness, his obedience is sufficient and perfect, if you do not believe in Jesus, yours will be a pitiable case on the day of judgment. But if your heart trembles at the thought of ever missing your Savior, your Jesus, and his kingdom, I want you to take comfort in the fact that amazing grace has taught your heart to fear. Amazing grace will your fears relieve. And amazing grace will lead you home. Ask yourself this, am I trusting in Christ alone for salvation, or am I like the Pharisees, trusting in my own moral achievements? Do I believe that Jesus bore all of my shame on the cross, took all of my lawlessness, died the death that I deserve? Do I believe that Jesus was buried, rose to live forevermore, and offers his perfect righteousness to me, an undeserving sinner? Right now, to Confess to God the Father through Jesus, your advocate, and ask him that your guilt and doubts be removed by the Holy Spirit, who, as, who is at this moment, right now, pointing you to Jesus. Ask that by faith, he would forgive you of your sin and help you to accept that forgiveness and grace and joy. Ask God to give you a deep, abiding gratitude and confidence in Christ, your Savior. The word of God to you this morning is Jesus. Hope in him. Trust in him. Because he is your way into the kingdom of God. And then you will never hear the words, depart from me. Let me pray for you and then we'll prepare for the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, if there be anyone here this morning who is struggling with eternal security, I pray that by your spirit that you would convince them that Jesus is the good shepherd, 
the narrow door through which undeserving sinners enter by your beautiful and free grace alone. I pray that you would grant us the assurance of Colossians 1.21 that we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing lawless deeds, have now been reconciled to you through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. And according to Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe that your righteous requirements are fulfilled in the perfect obedience of Jesus who always does the will of the Father. And we thank you this morning, God and Father of our Lord Jesus, for every spiritual blessing through Jesus. We thank you for adopting us as sons and daughters according to the purpose of your will, to the praise of your glorious grace. And this morning we pray what you pray for us. We pray for the fullness of your joy. Renew in us this morning the joy of our justification, the gladness of your grace, the merriment of your mercy, and the fortunateness of faith in you. Your joy is our strength, Lord Jesus. And so give us increasing faith, give us increasing hope and confidence of Philippians 1, 6, that Christ Jesus, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus' return. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.